Uh, well, friends, uh, at Church at Nine, uh, we've had the wonderful joy of seeing a few people getting engaged and married uh, over the past few years. Uh, my wife and I have been enjoying meeting with some of these couples, thinking about what the Bible says about marriage, and so that we can prepare them uh, for the life ahead. But one of the things that we try and help couples to do is to have right expectations about marriage. You know, if couples go into marriage thinking that they will have the perfect relationship with no conflict and no arguments and no disappointments, then they are in for a rude shock, aren't they? And uh, all uh, married couples in this room uh, will, will understand what I'm talking about. If couples go into the marriage thinking that their partner will always be on their best behaviour like they are when they are dating, well, they are in for a rude shock. In fact, uh, we sometimes ask couples to share their worst personal habits with one another so that they can get acclimatised to what marriage uh, is like. Uh, now, I don't want to paint marriage as miserable because, uh, obviously, it is, a, it is a good gift of God. But it is true, isn't it, not only in marriage, but in our jobs and in our families and in all areas of life, that right expectations are very important. Because if we have right expectations, then we'll be helped to endure through the difficult times. Uh, and friends, I want to suggest that uh, the part of Revelation that we'll be looking at this morning is a little bit like that. Uh, here, John is writing to the seven churches and giving them a right expectation of what it will look like for the Christian person to live in this world so that they will persevere, so that you and I will persevere in our faith. Uh, what kind of expectations uh, do you have? as a Christian person living in this world? What kind of expectations do you have of life? Now, friends, uh, last week, if you remember, we looked at chapters 4 to 5, and we were taken into the very th heavenly throne room of God, where God rules the world with all glory and majesty and honour. But we also saw, if you remember, that in his right hand he was holding a scroll or a book do you remember that? And we saw that this scroll contains God's plan to bring his kingdom into this world by saving his people and destroying his enemies. Further, if you remember, the only one qualified to open the seals on this scroll was Jesus, the one who was slain but who is now risen and reigning in heaven. For it is Jesus' death and resurrection that qualifies him to ex execute God's plans and purposes for this world. And so what we will see as we read Revelation together for the next few weeks is a series of uh, visions of what God's plans for this world look like. Uh, now, I've uh, given you a sheet uh, which I've taken out of a, a book called Wisdom, sorry, called uh, a book by, by Graham Goldsworthy, um, and it kind of looks like this, and it gives you um, just a, a, a bird's eye view of the structure of 
the book of Revelation. And uh, you'll see there that in the following chapters, there are actually cycles of visions containing seven elements. And so uh, in chapter 6, we will begin to see the seven seals being opened. Um, In chapters 8 to 9, we will start to see the seven trumpets. Um, Chapters 12 to 14, seven signs. Uh, Chapter 16, seven plagues and so forth. And I just want to say that these visions are meant to give us a bit of an idea about about what the world will be like in between Jesus' first coming and, in, and, and Jesus' second coming, as, as God's plans and purposes for his world are played out during that time. Uh, you know, it's a bit like seeing an action replay. Um, if you are a tennis fan, uh, you might have seen Roger Federer playing tennis on TV. And uh, every time he, he hits a backhand winner down the line, uh, well, the TV broadcasters show you an action replay, don't they? But they won't show you the same clip uh, again and again and again. What they will do is they will show you that uh, moment, but seen from different angles. You might get a, a shot of the winner from behind Roger Federer, another shot from the side of Roger Federer, uh, another shot from, from in front. But they are all showing you essentially the same thing, even though it's from different angles. And uh, I want to suggest that that's what the book of Revelation does. It shows you something about the period between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, but from slightly different angles. And so it would be a mistake to kind of put these episodes, if you like, side by side and think that Revelation is actually giving you a chronological uh, timeline of world history. Um, A lot of people read Revelation like that, where they just put the whole book of Revelation side by side, and then they try to pick, well, what moment in world history are we up to? You know, is the beast that we will meet later on speaking about Adolf Hitler or perhaps Donald Trump? Uh, if, if it is, then perhaps the end is just around the corner. A, l- a lot of people read Revelation like that. But I don't think that's how we're meant to read Revelation. Uh, Revelation is like that action replay that's replayed again and again and again of the same event uh, in world history, uh, that period between Jesus' first and second comings. And so, uh, if we turn our attention back to chapter 6, you will see there that Jesus the Lamb begins to open the seals that are around the scroll one by one. And with the first four seals, Jesus unleashes calamity into the world in the form of four horses and their horsemen. Uh, In popular um, culture, they are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which you may be familiar with. But who are these horses and who are these horsemen who are unleashed into the world? Uh, Well, if you have a look at chapter 6, verse 2, you will see that there that the first horse is a white horse. Now, different colours symbolise different things in different cultures, don't they? And so if you uh, 
think about the color white, what does the color white mean in Asian cultures? Death and mourning. And so if you go to a funeral in Asian cultures, you would wear white. But in the symbolism of the Bible, the color white is actually the color of conquest and victory. Uh, that's why later on in, in Revelation 19, we actually uh, see Jesus who rides a white horse. And all throughout Revelation, it is Jesus who clothes his people in white garments because ultimately Jesus is the one who has the victory and the one who is clothing his people in victorious garments. However, here, it is not Jesus who is on the white horse, but it seems to be a human tyrant of some description. He is a militaristic tyrant because he is given a bow, which was the weapon of choice in the ancient world. He is also a ruler of some description because he is given a crown. And it seems that he is bent on using his military power and his rule in order to conquer other people and build his empire. Human history has been full of such tyrants, hasn't it? Uh, in the Apostle John's day, it would have been the Roman Emperor Caesar. But human tyranny has been a part of this world for all of its history. From Adolf Hitler to Joseph Stalin to Saddam Hussein, to the human tyrants who rule in our offices and in our homes. Now, the second horse that you see there in uh, verse 4 is a bright red horse, which uh, quite appropriately symbolizes blood and warfare. Uh, often when you have tyrannical rulers, uh, what follows is war and bloodshed, isn't it? And so the rider of this red horse is permitted to take peace from the earth. In fact, he's given, a big, uh, he's given a sword so that people will slay one another in a massive bloodbath. And again, this is exactly what the world is like. Although, although the soundtrack to the 20th century was John Lennon's Imagine, where he uh, sang about people in this world living in peace, living life in peace, the reality has been that the 20th century has been the bloodiest of all of human history. Some estimate that 123 million people died as a result of warfare in the 20th century. Even now, I'm told that there are only 11 countries out of all the countries in the world that have relative peace. You see, the sinfulness of man runs so deep and the mess that we make, not only in international affairs but also in our homes and in our lives, is so tangled and untractable that even if we desire peace, we seem to be people who cannot do anything about it. But it gets worse. For the third horse that you see there in verse 5 is a black horse, and uh, if you read what, uh, follow, what follows, black seems to be the color of famine or scarcity. For you'll see that the rider of the black horse is holding a set of scales in his hand. And uh, these scales are not, um, you know, the scales of judgment. 
but it is the scale that you will see in markets where they weigh up food when they're selling food. Uh, why is he holding a set of scales? Well, you can see there that uh, he is actually selling food. But notice that he's selling this food for exorbitant prices. A denarius was equivalent to a day's wages for a, la uh, for a labourer. And so the image that you get here is of a person who, uh, in order to buy a small uh, ration of wheat, is having to use his entire day's wages. Or to buy a little bit more barley, which was a, a cheaper grain, would have to use his entire day's wages. It's a bit like you know, us going down to Strathfield after church and ordering a bowl of noodles and being charged $200 for it. Uh, that's sort of what's going on here. But even though the common person suffers under the weight of economic inflation, did you notice that the rich do not suffer? For the oil and the wine, which are luxury goods, are not actually harmed. Even though there is hyperinflation and poverty and a global financial crisis, well, the rich will continue to enjoy their luxury goods. For there is extreme economic inequality in this world. Now again, uh, this is true of life in this world, isn't it? Where you get militaristic tyrants, you get war and bloodshed. Where you get war and bloodshed, you get famine and economic turmoil. But finally, we come to our final horse, which in, chapter, in verse 8 is a pale horse. And uh, literally the word means a pale green, uh, a, a bit like the, the colour of a corpse. For this horse represents death itself. Now, that's why the name of the rider is called Death, and what closely follows is Hades, which is the place of death, uh, the place of the dead, rather. And notice that this rider is permitted to take life, whether it is through sword or famine or pestilence or any other tragedy. He's given authority to bring death into this world. But friends, here is the point that uh, may shock some of us. For did you notice who is allowing these things to happen? Well, it is Jesus. It is the Lamb. These things only happen because the Lamb opens the seals. It is only when the seal is opened that one of the four living creatures who represents the world cries out to the horses, come, come into this world, do your damage. Further, it is the lamb who equips the horsemen and gives permission for them to do the things that they do. And so in verse 2, it is the lamb who gives the bow and the crown to the rider of the white horse. In verse 4, it is the lamb who gives the great sword to the rider of the red horse. In verse 8, it is the lamb who gives authority to the rider of the pale horse to take life. And it is the lamb who actually puts a quota on the number of lives he, he can take. For you can see there that it is only a fourth of the earth that he is allowed to kill. It is as though these riders need a permission slip from the lamb in order to go and do their damage. And so the thing I want you to understand is that what the book of Revelation is describing here 
is the unleashing of the judgment of God into this world by the Lamb, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 1 as God giving people up to the foolishness of their ways so that life is destructive. You see, friends, we live in a world that is already under the judgment of God and is on its way to that final day of judgment when Jesus will say, enough. The judgment has already begun and it is irreversible because the Lamb has put it into action. And so, how are we to live with a realistic expectation of what the world is like? Well, I think for us it will mean that we come to terms with the fact that we simply cannot build heaven on earth. We simply cannot build heaven on earth. You know, some people think that a particular political ideology will be sufficient to build a heaven on earth. People say Marxism or a democratic state. Muslim people might think that it's the Islamic state. But whatever it is, it's a political ideology that will finally bring heaven on earth. Now, some political ideologies are better at restraining evil than other forms. But what God is telling us is that no political ideology will be able to achieve heaven on earth. For the world is under the judgment of God and the Lamb has unleashed his four horsemen into the world. But more common, I think, among Christians is the idea that we can live this life in such a way that we can start to build our own heaven on earth. Is that right? Perhaps we try to build our heaven on earth through the accumulation of wealth and our possessions and the things that we acquire. Perhaps we try to build our heaven on earth through the pursuit of worldly pleasure. But whatever form it takes, can you see here that God is saying that we cannot build heaven on earth for this world is under the judgment of God. Any attempt to build heaven on earth will either be frustrated by human tyranny or war or a global financial crisis or it will be short-lived because death is in this world. In my prior life, I was a tax consultant in a big accounting firm um, the partners in this firm were all extremely wealthy people. And uh, I remember one of the partners in the firm was just about to retire when, in the weeks leading up to his retirement, the whole company collapsed. And so he lost all his retirement nest egg in one foul swoop. It's as though the black horse just came and trampled all over his life. Uh, when I left high school, uh, I heard uh, the really sad and tragic story about my high school principal. 
On the week that he retired from his job, he was involved in a serious car accident and was left in a coma. He had his whole retirement to look forward to with his wife. But in an instant, just like that, life was taken from him. It's as though the pale horse had just trampled its way through his life. Now, friends, please don't hear me as saying that we cannot make improvements in our lives or enjoy this good creation uh, that God has given to us. But the question I want to ask you and me this morning is whether deep down we are people who believe that we can create some sort of heaven for ourselves here on earth. Are we people who invest heavily into life in this world because we think that this is what we can create for ourselves? Or are we the people who invest rather into the life and the world to come? For if we do invest too heavily into this life, what God says to us in this passage today is that it is a futile exercise. For this world is a world that is under God's judgment, and any attempt to build heaven for ourselves in this world will be frustrated or at best short-lived. Well, uh, if the opening of the first four seals by the Lamb give us realistic expectations of this world, then the opening of the fifth seal gives us a realistic expectation of the Christian life in this world. Uh, What can the Christian person like you and me expect in this world? Well, we can expect suffering, is what the Bible says. You can see this because in verse 9, the Lamb opens the fifth seal and John sees a heavenly altar. And uh, under this altar, he sees the souls of those who have been slain or killed for the word of God and for bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Why are their souls under the altar? Uh, Well, I think it's because uh, the altar was the place of sacrifice. And whenever you sacrificed an animal on the altar, the blood would sort of drip down to the bottom. And so these are the people who have spilt their blood for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And friends, I want you to notice the great outrage of these people who have been killed for their faith. For in verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, they are crying out to God to bring his kingdom and to judge those who have made God's people suffer. It's interesting that those who oppose Jesus are here called earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth. For they are the ones who live for this world, not the world that is to come. And what does Jesus do? Well, if you have a look at verse 11, he gives each of them a white robe, which is the garment of heaven, symbolizing victory. And he tells them to wait. Just wait a little bit longer. Just wait a little bit so that more people will come to serve the Lamb and become part of God's family. 
You see, this is the extraordinary grace and mercy of God, isn't it? Have you ever wondered why Jesus doesn't just say enough and put an end to this evil world? Well, it's because he's giving people time to turn back to him before that terrible day of God's judgment. It's because he takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. Uh, I love catchy titles when I'm browsing through the bookstore. And uh, one book I purchased a little while ago had the provocative title, Dumb Things That Smart Christians Believe. Dumb Things That Smart Christians Believe. Uh, I couldn't bring it with me because it's on my Kindle. But true to its title, this book listed a number of false things that Christians can believe about the Christian life. One of these things is the idea that if you become a Christian, then you can expect that God will somehow make your life easier. I wonder whether we can sometimes believe this in our hearts. If I just trust in God and do all the right things by God, then he will make my life easier and he will smooth out all the bumps in my life. But friends, it's a nonsense for God keeps on saying in the scriptures that if you are, and I are a, Christ, a Christian people, then your life and my life will in many ways be more difficult as we live out of step with the rest of the world. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Not some people, not some who are more godly than others, but all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, it is true that Christians are still killed for their witness to Jesus to this day. Uh, just this week, you may have uh, read in the papers about that uh, American missionary called John Chow, who was speared to death trying to bring the gospel of Jesus to a remote tribe off the coast of India. But because actual martyrdom... Uh, is such a distant reality for us. Um, I wonder whether we have difficulty feeling the weight of passages like this. But friends, uh, what I want to suggest this morning is that everyone who is a Christian person is called to be a martyr. Everyone who is a Christian person is called to be a martyr. Uh, do you remember the words of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples when he said, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, Jesus' invitation to follow him all the way to eternal life is essentially an invitation to die. Now, some of us, um, uh, not everyone, will die physically for the sake of Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is you cannot be a Christian person unless you die to yourself and you live for him. And effectively, all those other decisions that we wrestle with, you know, those decisions that we try to make about our jobs and um, 
our, our, uh, where we live and our relationships and our money and possessions and holidays, all those decisions, I think, are effectively decided when we make that one decision that we will lose our lives for the sake of following Jesus. That decision to lose our lives and to find our real life in Jesus. And so, friends, what is your life and my life really about? Uh, Are we trying to cling on to our life and our dreams and our ambitions for heaven on earth? Or have you lost that life? Because you want to follow Jesus. And you want to be part of his kingdom. If the only reason why Jesus has not drawn the curtains on history, on world history, and brought things to an end, is that he is giving time for people to repent and come to him, then what should our lives be about? But the final day of God's judgment will happen. There will be a time when God's patience runs out and he says, enough. And it will happen because the Lamb has opened the sixth seal and John has seen that terrible day. For those who stand opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ on that day will face terrible calamity. And so what we see next is meant to give us a realistic expectation of the end and a seriousness about what is certain to happen. You can see there in verse 12 that this final day of judgment is described in strange ways. Uh, You see a great earthquake. You see the sun turning black. You see the moon turning blood red. You see the stars uh, falling to the ground like apples falling from an apple tree on a windy day. You see the sky rolling up like a scroll and vanishing before your eyes. You see every mountain and island being uprooted and removed from its place. It's, it's very strange language, but uh, if, if you uh, read through the Bible, this kind of language is very familiar because uh, it's the kind of language that the Bible uses to describe the final day, the, 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 the last day. It's not meant to be read literally, but it is describing a real day when the world as we know it will be dissolved by God. And you can see the terrifying nature of that day in the image of people desperately trying to hide in vain from the presence of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. I can see it there in verse 15 where all people, whether they are kings or servants or powerful or weak or rich or poor, are all on the same level playing field as sinners when it comes to facing the judgment of God. On that day, the royal family will huddle in a cave with the homeless beggar. On that day, presidents will hide in the mountains with council workers. On that day, the CEO will want to die along with the unemployed rather than face the terrible judgment of the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. On that day, their money will not save them. On that day, 
Their possessions will not save them. On that day, achievements will mean nothing. And the single most important question that will be asked on that day, you can see there in verse 18, is the question, who can stand? Who can stand? Is there anyone who can stand on that terrible day before the God who sees every sinful thought and inclination of the heart? Will you and I stand on that terrible day? Well, next week, we'll see the good news that there are people who will stand on that day. And we will see that the only way they can stand is by putting their trust in the blood of the Lamb who was slain. For it is only by taking refuge in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that anyone will be able to withstand that terrible day when God comes to right the wrongs in this world. Revelation is written for believers, but if you are here this morning and you have not yet turned to Jesus the Lamb and taken shelter in his blood shed on the cross for you, then can I urge you to turn to him today? If you're not sure how to do that, uh, speak to Uh, the friend who brought you to church today, or speak to me, or speak to Piri. But please do it, for that is the only way that anyone will stand on that terrible day of Jesus' wrath. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is like spiritual glasses that help us see the world clearly. Thank you that you created the world good and that we can still enjoy your good gifts to us in this world. But we thank you that you help us to see the reality of a fallen world that is under your judgment. Father, when we see evil and tragedy and death in this world, in general, but especially towards your people, uh, we also cry, how long? But we thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy and that you are holding back the final judgment so that people might turn to you in faith and repentance. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see this world as you see it. Uh, Please help us to organise our lives and live this life Um, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of the gospel and the salvation of men and women, so that they might also come to stand with us on that final day, washed clean, forgiven, assured of salvation by the blood of the Lamb. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.